We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. E. Welcome to the Resilient Schools podcast on the B Podcast Network. We are so excited to have Alexis Reed on the show today. And uh, we are going to talk about a whole bunch of things, uh, but a lot of executive functioning and uh, building relationships. Uh, so, Alexis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what. Uh, why you're even here. Like, what makes you so amazing that we get to chat with you today? Uh, Thanks, Jethro. I'm so glad to be here. So I am technically an educational therapist and a learning consultant with a specialization primarily in executive function, as you mentioned, social emotional learning, teaching, learning, human development. I do a whole lot of things. Um, As my clients will tell you, Alexis does a little bit (laughs) of everything. I have another primary focus on designing flexible and accessible learning environments through a universal design for learning lens. I have a private practice here in Boston and in Cape Cod and virtually as I work with people around the world um, called Read Connect LLC, where I help to support individuals and systems, both in person and virtually, kind of at the intersections of learning and well-being. So I'm kind of putting all the pieces together to help people navigate their lives as learners, but it also translates across different aspects and contexts in their life. I am a CAST UDL National Faculty and Cadre member for more than a decade, where I facilitate online and in-person professional development courses and trainings on UDL with a focus on executive function, social-emotional learning around the country and around the globe. And I do a lot of more specific executive function workshops and work for myself, too. I have a, a forthcoming book through CAST Publishing coming out on executive function in UDL for insights for educators to better understand how we could proactively plan to support these sets of skills. Um, myself and my brother, who is a clinical psychologist, Dr. Gerald Reed, our co-host on the Reed Connected podcast, which aims to connect and educate curious-minded individuals with information relative to mental health, learning, performance, education, wellness, executive function, and so much more. Um, lots of different things, and I'm very passionate about my work, and I'm grateful 
on so many levels to be able to do what I do. Yeah, and as we talked about when I met you in person uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, it's pretty cool that you get to design what your work life looks like and the things that you do. Um, what what do you think people should get out of this episode that we talk about today? Oh, great question. I, I think if we were to boil it down to a couple ideas, it would be to understand that variability exists across all learning environments, about across all learners and humans in general, that we need to accept that everybody is going to think, learn, and engage a little bit differently. And we can be considerate of how some of them will have different skill sets that maybe need to be developed with our, our focus on executive function here today, and that we can empathize and support them in that process. But most importantly, that the relationships that we have with learners that we interact with and we have the privilege of working with really, I think, transcends anything we could try to explicitly teach them. Yeah. I, I was going to add to that piece about the relationship transcending things. And I just... I, I feel so strongly that if we can see each person as our own unique individual, then we're going to be set up so much better for success in all areas of our life and that they're going to have more success as well. So I, I think that's the big thing to get out of this is where, mm-hmm. as you're listening, where are you, um, where are you succeeding in that regard? And where could you use a little bit of extra effort to, help you be more successful in that regard. And more importantly, we didn't talk about this per se, but what do you need to take off your plate and stop worrying about that is preventing you from connecting and being with people? Well, I guess we talked about it right at the very end of, of the show. And we need... Yeah. Yeah, yeah listen, listen to, to the, the end, end for that key little <laughs> tidbit. Okay, we will get to our interview here with Alexis in just a moment. Thanks so much for listening to Resilient Schools on the B Podcast Network. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools so that I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com BE for a demo. That's IXL.com BE. So Alexis, tell us about how students are wounded by school. What, is, what does that mean and what does that look like? Yeah, so there's a really great book by Kirsten Olson, which I recommend all educators read, which is called Wounded by School. And, you know, in my work as an educational therapist, I often am interacting with learners of all ages who share their story with me. And I feel like I have a really unique privilege that I have their trust enough for them to share their experiences with me. And 
what their own school wounds might look like can be different depending on a lot of different situations. Typically, the primary population of learners that I work with usually have some sort of diagnosis of ADHD or ADD, a learning disability. They've experienced mental health challenges and it's impacted their executive function skills. So that's primarily the work that I focus on. So when they come to me, a lot of the the different stories they tell are related to, you know, other adults in their lives, whether it's an educator, parent, or staff member who's like, how could you be so bright and so capable, but then struggle so much, right? A lot of invalidation around their experience of maybe not being able to access the curriculum or the content, struggling socially in different situations where maybe they can't read nonverbals or they have a hard time with their working memory skills, holding on to information to be able to share back at an appropriate time in an appropriate way. You know, sometimes it's as, as what we might say, like simple as that, even though those experiences can be really heavy for a lot of people, given their circumstance and whatever they might have experienced in the past. And other times it can really feel traumatic to them. And I, I use that word purposefully, <laughs> but I also want to say it with caution that, you know, trauma is something that is a very specific experience that has long lasting impact. Um, but, you know, sometimes there are educators who interact with students in a way that could feel traumatic to a learner. So, you know, what those school wounds look like can be different for each individual, but really it's it's the story of what a child or a learner's experience is and how they do or do not feel capable or engaged in a way that feels meaningful to them. So a lot of times, you know, I bet we all, every one of your listeners and, and Jethro, I know you and I have talked about this already, that we've all had encounters with learners who just feel disconnected, disengaged, really kind of feel like they don't have the capabilities or they're just feeling totally isolated in their experience in school, which can feel like they don't belong. They feel like school isn't for them. So when we think about these school wounds, it could be a number of different things. But from my experience and the anecdotes that I could share and we'll probably talk about here in our time together are, are really based on you know students who were struggling who were trying to pull it together, trying to hold on to what they needed to do, trying their best to show up and do what they can, and often were under-recognized, like the struggle wasn't noticed or addressed, or that they asked for support and never really got what they needed because maybe it was difficult for them to articulate in those moments when it was hard for them, or those who would act out in some, as we call in the educational world, behavioral way. <laughs> and, you know, that was a symptom of something else that was going on for them that got misinterpreted and they just got in trouble a lot instead of really getting their needs met in different ways. So, you know, these school wounds, I think all go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like, what do we need at different levels and stages of our life? And how do we access those things to feel comfortable and safe, which is ultimately the goal of being in school and in learning is to feel safe and comfortable, welcome and supported to be able to explore, create, make mistakes and just kind of learn through that process. You said a couple things that I want to go back and 
focus on. The first one is that there are kids who feel like school is not for them. And the harsh mm. reality that we don't like to admit, but that I think we must admit, is that school is not designed to be beneficial to kids. And it is not designed for the learners. It is designed for the adults in the building. Do you want to comment on that? I have my own thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you think first. Wow. That's a powerful statement. Whoa. Um, so, okay. School is not designed. You know, if you go all the way back to the history of education as, you know, we can go back to the history of education in America, we'll start with, right? It was very industrialized. It's very focused on, you know, how do we help students to be able to meet the needs of the the job needs, right? The industrial economic needs of the country versus how do we inspire children and learners to be excited about learning new things. So yeah, in that respect, school isn't necessarily established and designed in a way to spark creativity and learning and the creation of knowledge helping and problem solving. So, you know, there is a lot of um, these historical foundations for education, as we all know, that are rooted in like, how do we help people to do the thing that society wants you to do versus explore what works best for you. And, you know, in a world where standardization makes things easier to do, it makes sense for educators to kind of go through the process of doing what is going to hopefully help capture the attention and the intellect of the majority versus really looking at the broad spectrum of variability in learning. And my background, as, as you and I have discussed before, is is really focused on um, educational and developmental psychology with a focus on universal design for learning, where my whole world is about looking at variability in learning and in life, right? Like I can't actually turn that lens off once, once I put those glasses on to be able to understand that there's so much variability. We can't just like aim for the middle as most educational institutions have pretty much been designed and have been functioning to do for so long. So it's, you know, I want to validate the educators who might be in the system where they're like following their curriculum and doing what they need to and getting through their content, but also really like make light of the point you're making that the systems aren't really set up to inspire true knowledge building, critical problem solving, and learning for the, the learner, at least the majority in the United States. And to tell you the truth, I think um, a lot of different schools, at least those I've worked with, they're forward thinking and wanting to take a more universal designed approach to learning. But, you know, there are a lot of antiquated systems that fall back on what's comfortable and what they know versus maybe what the students and learners really need. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of that. And I would I'm, I'm much more aggressive in my condemnation of our system because I think that we're doing such a disservice and uh, doing so much that is, like, learning is not our goal in schools. Compliance is our goal. So we're not interested in kids learning. We Oftentimes, are interested in yeah. them being compliant and doing what we ask them to do. And the the problem that I see with this is that when that happens that's where these these wounds come from is that we have mm. a goal that is different 
from what we claim our goal is like you know lots of schools have mission statements that say like we want to empower our kids to do these different things and the reality is is that they don't actually want to do that which is why there's always such cognitive dissonance around that is that the they may say this is what we want and that we're focused on learners but then all the decisions are made are focused on the making things easier for the adults i mean grades is a good example of that just the idea that we even have grades standards at different levels are good examples of that as well so the reason why i bring that up first is because i want to move into this idea of executive functioning and to make sure that everybody understands can you define briefly what executive functioning means so that we know we're talking about the same thing yeah for sure so essentially executive function is such a an elusive term because it's been defined in so many different ways especially in education it's kind of been boiled down to the behaviors related to the cognitive set of skills that essentially allow for us to get things done right if i talk about executive function it's like this is a set of cognitive skills that are employed across development and across our lives to be able to get things done, especially efficiently, is really the goal. Um, that's the umbrella way of describing it in simple terms. But really, executive function from a, a more of a neurocognitive sense is looking at three core cognitive skills. So we've got inhibition, our ability to be able to pause and assess before responding or reacting. We've got working memory, so being able to take in information and then do something with it. So this is not necessarily short or long-term memory. It's more of like actually working memory. So if I'm going to give you a direction, you're able to take that direction and do something with it and act on it. And then finally, we have cognitive flexibility where we're able to be able to like shift sets. So if we're given one direction and then all of a sudden a new direction is added or a new plan needs to be followed, that we have that flexibility to be able to make a pivot, to be able to shift our approach. So um, there's tons of research out there on executive function. And I use those three core cognitive skills to define what it is because there's been an amalgamation of all these great research studies and articles and all of the things about executive function that have been boiled down primarily through um, Adele Diamond and um, Joseph Nick, who have done some really great work to boil it down to those three core skills. So when I and, and most people nowadays are talking about executive function, those are the core cognitive skills that we're talking about. And then, you know, we have the behaviors related to it. How do we plan? How do we organize? How do we prioritize? A lot of people talk about time management. I don't really think we could manage time. So I talk about it in terms of how do we prioritize time, um, task initiation, progress monitoring, a, a whole slew of skills and, and related behaviors that we want students to be able to carry out and do. And to be quite honest, it's not just about learning, you know, executive function skills are a part of everybody's daily life, whether you're taking care of a household, working at a business, or, you know, even just, you know, working at a at a market, being able to like organize your whole process in way in which you're interacting with people, the way in which you're setting up your day and doing the things you need to do. So there are so many different related behaviors to executive function. And I get all lit up, as you could probably tell, talking about it, because when I think about learning and education, 
like this is a set of skills that every single person needs to be able to embody, to practice, to develop, to refine, to be able to do things in their lives, period. You know, it's not just a certain segment of individuals who um, maybe need some extra support. Uh, It's not just a certain socioeconomic class. It's not just a certain cultural group. These are skills across the board that everyone around the world can develop and build and strengthen. Though we do know through a universal design approach, you know, everybody benefits from developing these skills, but there are certain more vulnerable populations of individuals and learners who definitely need additional supports to be able to strengthen and bolster those skills, especially those who have a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. Executive function doesn't fall in the United States in the DSM as a specific um, as a specific diagnosis, but it is closely tied to attention deficit. And a lot of people, uh, Dr. Barkley in particular, who will say that ADHD is more of uh, an executive function deficit versus an attention deficit. But this is an area that often gets impacted by those individuals, uh, for those individuals, and also individuals who have learning disabilities, those who are on the autism spectrum, those who've experienced trauma or have mental health challenges as well as those who have had, you know, traumatic brain injury, oftentimes we see a reduction in executive function skills. So there's, there's a a lot of different individuals who absolutely need additional support in developing these skills. But everybody benefits from it. And I always say that the, the best part about my job and my work is that these are skills that can be developed. It's not like you have what you have and that's it. There's always ways to become a better problem solver, to learn how to inhibit differently, to practice different skills. And we see this in, you know, young kids playing games and interacting with each other. You know, we could see these skills develop and come online in so many different ways, which is really cool. So I like how you said that it's not just about learning, but about living also. I think we could do a whole podcast Mm -hmm. about how you can't manage time you can only prioritize it so that that will be podcast number <laughs> number two with you and me uh, I think we should go into that deeply <laughs> at a later time mm-hmm. but then the other thing that I want to think about with this is because we can define it as inhibition working memory and cognitive flexibility we can see how if if that were our goal to help kids in school have good executive functioning, we would have to change how we do school. Now, the thing that we've already been talking about is being wounded by schools in those situations. Um, so how do, how do these wounds come about as it relates to these core tenets of executive functioning? What, what are some of the things that you see there? And, and let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So for for one, the invalidation, right? I think that is probably one of the biggest things that I hear from people that I work with and I've worked with over the years is that, you know, they often get mislabeled as behavioral issues or, you know, they will call themselves dumb or stupid or just not able to do things because they struggle with being able to activate these skills. And oftentimes these are 
learners who can have really deep, sophisticated conversations because oftentimes their verbal skills are pretty strong and they can communicate or they have different strengths that they use to compensate and kind of hide their skill deficits that are still developing. So it, it could be easy for an adult in their world to say, well, why can't you do this? <laughs> you know, it, you were able to do that before. And why is this one task so challenging for you? Um, so the invalidation part and just this misinterpretation of their struggles is often a big part of those school wounds. Yeah. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. I didn't prep you for this specifically, but this invalidation is, is tying in very nicely to this idea of schools not designed for kids. That it, if a student cannot do addition or read by a certain age or grade level or whatever, then they are quote unquote dumb. Even if nobody ever says that, even if everybody is like supportive and helpful and all that, they still feel dumb because they know what kids are expected to do at that certain time. And they know that they don't fit that mold. And so there's this balance that you have to have between saying, this is what we're doing and this is where we want to go and having kids like be okay with with realizing that not everybody moves at the same rate or in the same way and that is literally the truth we are all unique individuals and we have to start there but our school system does not set us up for that our school system says that we all need to move in the same way at the same rate and learn the same the things in the same order and that's just not that's just not the reality. So I have this uh, this image that I created. You've probably seen the what success looks like or what people think success looks like and what success actually looks like. Um, well, I did a little twist on that and uh, it is what people what schools think learning looks like and what learning actually looks like. Mm. And it is it is really just this crazy mess of like different kinds of strings all mixed together and all jumbled and like it it doesn't work and there's one through line that is the actual learning but there are so many things interconnected and related to it that you can't possibly say this specific teacher taught this specific skill at this specific time 
and mm. it was this beautiful straight line because a student may have learned something from this other experience that had nothing to do with it and that's how they solidified that learning that it is impossible to replicate it's impossible to duplicate uh, but if it doesn't happen within the four walls of the classroom then it doesn't count or it's not valid or whatever and that leads kids to thinking that they're dumb and so um, so I love that term of invalidation because it's basically saying uh, these other things don't count all that counts is what's in the four walls of our classroom and that's mm -hmm. the only learning that matters and how do we how do we overcome that as educators and make it so that all kids feel like all their learning is valued and is worthwhile uh, etc. Go ahead. You've got a big smile on your face, so I know you've got the answer, which I'm excited <laughs> to hear. You're going to solve our problems. Well, I'm laughing because there is no, I wish, I wish there was a one answer and it was that prescriptive. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I joke all the time that even, even in my work to build executive function skills, it's so nuanced. There's like a million strategies and skills that I can offer to help specifically target those skills, but it doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone all the time. So everything's so nuanced, but I, you know, when we think about when we get metrics involved in education, it's a really good way to help us understand trends and patterns in quote unquote learning. But it goes back to like what Einstein said, right? If you're going to judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing it's stupid. And we use that a lot in the UDL world because it's like our assessments for what learning looks like it doesn't necessarily capture true learning. And I have to explain this all the time to especially parents that a lot of these assessments are more for educators to see how well they did at teaching the skills that they taught, but it, it really is just a snapshot. It doesn't necessarily capture how a learner is doing more than how they showed up that day and they navigated through a set of questions that they were given in any other way. And one of the things that you know, I don't often lead with, but maybe I should, is that I'm a Montessorian at heart. I was actually, uh, I feel very lucky that my parents sent me to a Montessori preschool when I was younger. And that is pretty much how I was raised at home with my family is that like, I was very creative and exploratory, communicative, as you could probably imagine. And I really love to like dive deep into things that I cared a lot about. And it's, it set me on this path to be, I think, the truest version of myself to find my purpose through these experiences. And, you know, later in life, after I went to graduate school for um, applied developmental and educational psychology, I learned about UDL. I started doing teacher trainings around UDL. And then I actually went back and became a trained Montessori teacher, which I want to share for a moment, because I think this targets a little bit of what you're asking, where... You know, I don't think there's one best fit for every single student all the time, but there are some core things we could do as educators to be able to help them feel safe, secure, connected, as you were asking. Um, but from a Montessori pedagogical philosophy, I'll just share a quick um, tidbit is that we want to be sure that we're setting up some firm parameters to allow for flexibility. And this is actually a core 
principle in the universal design for learning world too, is that with when we have firm goals, we can allow for flexibility in how we achieve and reach those goals. So in a Montessori classroom, you know, she talks about order and chaos, right? The environment becomes another teacher rather than it just being a reliance on an adult or even a mentor. And then peer interactions become another teacher. The materials that the students are using to learn becomes another teacher. You know, we, we need to actually like take our ego out of the picture as educators and realize that we are not like the sole holders of all the knowledge and wisdom that these students are gonna be able to attain in their time that they have with us. And the reality is, is like, the learners I work with have greater insight than I can ever imagine sometimes, but they haven't had the opportunity to really share that or explore it or to interact or like get messy with it. So I think one of the most important things that we can do is really give students and learners that structure with flexibility for one, and also like really giving them an opportunity to share their voice. You know, when they're able to take time to reflect, you know, a good majority of my work one-on-one with individuals or in groups, and I hear this from students of all ages that I work with, when I say, what's the biggest benefit of us working together? And they say, you know, it gives me time to press pause and to reflect back on how things have been going and then think about what else I can do differently. And I think when we go into the classroom, I wish that we'd be able to give a little bit more opportunity to do that And I know I hear every educator saying, well, we don't have time to do that, blah, blah, blah. Yes, and if we don't take the time to do that, what are we actually teaching? That it's just about task completion and compliance? Or are we really getting into like, how do we think well? How do we learn and explore and create and problem solve? Because that's really what the world needs these days. There's with AI and all the computer systems and digital technologies, like there's an app for that. (laughs) (laughs) But there's not necessarily this like human aspect of how do we interact and collaborate and problem solve and understand empathy to support each other and big problems in our world to be able to do better. Um, And that's really what learning is about. So if I were to say like two of the biggest things that we could do, and there's plenty more, this is like five other podcasts that we could have together. But I think two of the primary things is to really set up structure with flexibility and allow for student voice to feel respected, to feel heard, to feel appreciated. I think we all in this world, this is not me just talking about students in a classroom, but I think all of us in humanity need to do better at listening and sharing our experiences and valuing and feeling safe in doing that, even if we have differences in perspective and experience to be able to to talk with one another, to be able to really truly understand and and you know going back to that word to validate that yeah that that makes sense because you lived it versus that doesn't make sense because it's not what i asked you to do that's powerful so um i i love that idea just a quick side note about the ai stuff and you said something so important in school Mm -hmm. really about task completion and that is how we have set it up to be so a lot of teachers are upset that kids are using uh, artificial intelligence to complete their tasks, but that's exactly how we've set it up so that they, that's what their goal is, is to complete the task. And so that 
I've been speaking about uh, AI a lot lately, and that's one of the things that I've been harping on again and again, that <clears throat> if we use AI to circumvent the learning process uh, and we set it up that way from the beginning, as the teachers, that kids can do that, then we're in a world of hurt. If we, however, set it up so that mm. the learning process is the focus, and then it doesn't really matter if they use AI, because if the AI helps them with the learning process, that's great, that's what we want. If the AI is circumventing the learning process, we're gonna see and know and be able to tell very quickly that that's what's going on. And then we can continue that conversation about the AI circumventing the learning process. That's not what we're looking for. So that side piece I think is really valuable and important to, to just uh, talk about briefly. And on the Transformative Principle podcast, if you listen to this show but don't listen to that show, my interview with uh, Victor Karkar, we talk about that a lot as he is creating an AI app to help. Teachers definitely want to use uh, AI to complete their tasks as well they should. Um, and the real important thing is that once you have a skill, you should be using technology and tools to make that skill go faster. And for example, once you know how to do addition and multiplication, then it makes sense to use a calculator because you can do it so much quicker and you can tell if it's correct or not. So as a side point, mm -hmm. next question on this topic, Okay, hit it. Well, I Let's, can actually, I'm going to okay, talk about for that for, for one second. And this, again, could be a whole nother hour conversation or more. But I, I just want to say, you know, I have mixed feelings about AI. And I will I will speak from the educators that are resistant and hesitant that, you know, they might say, oh, this is scary. I don't understand it. But there are so many things that we didn't understand before that actually are so ingrained in a part of our lives these days. I mean, you and I right now are on different sides of the country and communicating and recording and sharing information, which, you know, 10 years ago, we would have thought was futuristic and, you know, Jetsonian, I'll call it from the well, Jetsons. I, I do have to interrupt you for <laughs> but, just a uh, because I have been doing my podcast for 10 years yeah. and done them all virtually. So we need to go back a little bit further. Yeah. So for me, okay. 10 okay. years ago, I just, uh, <laughs> it, it is pretty amazing that, that these tools even exist. Yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, but for the, you know, what you were saying makes a lot of sense that, you know, especially as educators, because there's so many hats, there's so many tasks, there's so many things that need to happen. And there's so many teachers and educators that I think have really been benefiting, even researchers and psychologists as well, who have been really benefiting from, you know, some AI generated systems that we might not even realize, you know, help in grading and navigating things. But I think it all comes down to this really important behavior related to executive function skills is prioritization. How do we prioritize the skills, the tasks, the work that's getting done? And sometimes we need to offload some of the menial tasks that have those skills have already been established. Like you said, I love the example of the calculator. Like once we have our arithmetic um, skills developed, which by the way, those increase our working memory, holding on to information, manipulating it and sharing a response. Um, it's a really great way to practice, especially through games. But once you have those skills established and solidified, using a calculator makes sense. There are very few adults who don't like pull out their calculator and just double check something. So why are we asking young learners to do that 
I mean, it's almost like an I gotcha, like you don't have that skill yet, I gotcha, versus like, hey, how do we build efficiencies to do this a little bit better? And the one thing with AI that I think is helpful from an executive function perspective too is sometimes the individuals who really haven't developed EF skills yet really need an extra boost sometimes to get started. So building clarity in the way in which directions and prompts are delivered, um, boiling things down into more simplistic terms or steps. If AI, when AI helps with that, it could transform a student's experience and it moves from them procrastinating, avoiding, not doing work to sometimes just getting started. And again, I always say, you know, it's, it's either going to help you or it's not going to help you. And if you're going to use it as something that you're going to just produce something from it, it's not actually benefiting you because you're not learning and you're not necessarily building your skills. But if it's going to help you to get started, if it's that initial entry point, sometimes that's what students need. And sometimes, and this is a big point that I hope we come back to too, students have a hard time admitting because they are embarrassed, because they feel shame, because they feel guilt, because they feel like I should be able to do this, that they don't even know how to ask for help. And this is where we see a lot of these school wounds come up and bubble up to the surface when there's those experiences. So again, I am skeptical of AI. (laughs) I think that human relationships are more important than most anything. And we'll talk more about that too in a minute. But I think they're there's some really nice potential for some of these technologies that I've seen in the AT world with some of my colleagues and friends who do incredible work to help individuals with disabilities really gain access to learning and different life skills. AT world being assistive technology world, I presume, right? Okay. Um, Yes, thank you. So I'm glad that you went there because that's where I was going to segue after this conversation anyway, because I, again, I do think it ties into... Uh, artificial intelligence that the other part of artificial intelligence is that if it circumvents something then it is also in my mind bad and that is that if it circumvents relationships that we should use artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence also to help improve our relationships and like you said so we don't have to talk about AI anymore but let's talk about relationships and how important that is how that helps heal wounds and how it helps us grow closer to others and uh, and be more connected with them. Yeah, so something you said earlier um, reminded me of one of those stories in Kirsten Olson's book about school wounds. And it was by um, Todd Rose, who when I was um, doing my internship at CAST back in grad school, probably like 17 years ago or so, um, I got to work with him and got to know him. He's an incredible individual. He's got some great YouTube videos and amazing books out there, one of which is called Square Peg. And one of the things he shares and a lot of the stories that he tells in his work, he's now um, a professor at Harvard and does some really incredible work in a collaborative that he recently started. Um, He tells a story about how he was an ADHD kid who often would get in a lot of trouble when he was younger. In fact, he ended up dropping out of high school and ended up in a very different situation than you would expect most 
Harvard trained neuroscientists with their PhD. So he tells the story and, you know, square peg is all about these learners who oftentimes are these square pegs trying to be fit into these round holes. And I, I, I'll spare you all the details, but I really want you to think about that image that when we set up learning environments in classrooms and educational institutions where we have these expectations that not everybody could meet, um, what is that actually devaluing in the process of teaching, learning, and education. I think it's devaluing uh, variability. It's devaluating creative thought. It's devaluating problem solving, which are essential skills that, you know, for many years, the United States educational system was known for, right? Because it was supposedly a place that was different from, you know, some of the the Asian schools and some of the other schools overseas, where things were very much about metrics and statistics and what the outcome was. So even though we have fault with some of the educational school systems here in the US, you know, around the world, we were kind of known for a place where there was more creativity, especially in some of the more progressive schools that we have in the States. Not necessarily all of the public schools, though there are some incredible schools doing really great work that I feel fortunate to be able to work with and have worked with in the past. Um, so, you know, I want us to think about this idea of when we set up these these boundaries, like I said, are actually very important. But if we don't allow for flexibility, what happens? The learners often will kind of sink. You know, you could see them physically sinking into their seat. They'll push back against the boundaries. They'll disengage. Oftentimes, you'll see them just not show up anymore, even physically. We have a, a big issue, I think, in the States, especially with school refusal, getting students even to come to the classroom for various reasons. And I can't tell you how many times, and this is not a knock on teachers, but I can't tell you how many times a lot of students are like, my teacher is just somebody I can't talk to. I don't feel like I have a relationship with. I don't feel like they understand me as a learner. They just keep pushing and pushing and pushing instead of really understanding, you know, and it totally shuts them down. And these are really bright, curious kids. And I've said on, on my podcast with my brother that, you know, I've never met a student who doesn't, doesn't want to do well. <laughs> and he pushed back and said, well, that's not always the case because sometimes their goal is to not do well and they don't feel comfortable doing well for other psychological reasons. So I'll yeah. leave that right there. But, um, <laughs> but you know, for the, for the majority of students over my, you know, 20 plus years in education that I've worked with, I've never met a student who didn't want to learn and improve, right? They often didn't know how to articulate it. They often didn't know how to do it. They often didn't even know what was getting in their way. But as much as possible, and of course, I, I too probably have made many mistakes in my career to not be able to fully address everything for everyone because that's a really difficult thing to do when you have a lot of students you work with. But I try my best to be curious, right? Ask good questions, to be able to say like, hey, was this helpful or was this not helpful? What do you think might be helpful? What do you think won't be helpful? What do you think we could do differently? And, and help to like engage this critical thinking system to be able to start problem solving, right? It starts with validation as we mentioned, but I think it also moves into, can we problem solve together? 
Because when we think about these young learners or those who have more vulnerable sets of executive function skills, it makes it really difficult for them to problem solve by themselves, right? What are the options? Sometimes they don't even know there are other options because they're like, this adult teacher who is in charge of me right now told me that this is how things have to be done and I can't do that, right? And this is where these school wounds come up again. It's like, I can't do that, so there's something wrong with me versus is there maybe another approach I should be taking? You know, I, it sounds like I need to get your brother on the show also and talk about that, uh, that thing about kids, (laughs) some kids not wanting to do well. And the reality is, is everybody wants to do well, what, however they define doing well, you know, they may not want to do well within the context of what school defines as well, but everybody wants to have a fulfilling life. Everybody wants to live a life at their best, you know, and, and I truly believe deep down that everybody is doing the best they possibly can in that moment, even if it's not as good Mm -hmm. as they were five minutes ago, or as good as they will be five minutes from now, in that moment, you're constantly doing the best that you possibly can. Because if you could do any better, you already would be. And, and just having that perspective Mm -hmm. with anybody we interact with, uh, it really opens up a lot of understanding and empathy and caring about them as human beings that I think is really powerful. And we don't spend enough time recognizing or validating or valuing that. Um, Alexis, this has been a great conversation. I could, uh, you know, we found seven different ideas that we could do for other shows. So uh, we're going to be in touch a lot. And <laughs> Um, and I just want to say, as we close out here, thank you to you as well for making time for me when I was in Boston uh, a couple of weeks ago to be able to Aww. see you. I mean, we only spoke for like 20 minutes uh, while we were eating lunch. Uh, and I just appreciated you making that effort so much. You were busy and it it, it was not it was not the best possible situation. But it was the best we could do in the moment. And it was so wonderful to meet you in person. And as I've said in my newsletter and other things, whenever I connect with someone, I expect that relationship to last for 10 years. And that is the truth. And uh, I think we've got a great 10 years ahead of us. So I'm thankful for you and this opportunity uh, to be here with you today. So thank you. That's very sweet. And thank you for having me on the show. And in fact, I think that example is probably the best advice for educators listening or you know administrators listening into the podcast. It's like, even when you're busy, even when there's a lot going on, even when there's not that much time, you can make time to make that connection and just to check in and just say, hey, you matter to me and I, I wanna make sure that I show up for you. And I think that is probably one of the most powerful things we could do in education, but in life. So I appreciate you sharing that and I appreciate you and thank you for all you do for the educators out there and for having me on. Hopefully this won't be the last time. Um, uh, Last thing, uh, (laughs) you definitely put your money where your mouth is because you did that. So just saying, that's awesome. And if people want to reach out to you, the best (laughs) place is probably readconnect.com, which is your website. Would you like to promote or suggest people go anywhere else? Yeah, so I am I'm also on Instagram at Alexis Ann A N N Reed R E I D. Um and 
on X, Twitter, whatever we call it nowadays. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, my brother and I have a podcast also called the Read Connect Ed podcast, which is really about connecting people to information about wellness, mental health, education, executive function, and really just about how to navigate this complicated life of ours thank you so much this has been great chatting with you and uh, look forward to the future if you like what you heard there are three ways that you can get more from it first share the podcast with your friends and talk about it with them as well second go to resilientschools.com and download the roles in a resilient schools cheat sheet third reach out to us if you need training around any of the topics on this podcast by going to resilientschools.com There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.